second Vita Dao Crypto Meets Longevity Symposium. We have a day packed with great talks and panels covering the latest in longevity science and medicine, paired with updates from the decentralized science movement and crypto industry. For us at VitaDAO, it's been an eventful six months since our last symposium. Many exciting things are happening in the longevity field, the crypto space, and um, at VitaDAO. In total, we have now funded uh, 15 projects with more than $3 million. And we currently actually have like an open application round until October 25th for this batch. So um, if you have any cool uh, projects, feel uh, free to, to apply with that. Um, furthermore, we actually got big pharma companies like Pfizer, and crypto funds like L1 Digital and Shine Capital to apply to our institutional genesis round and to co contribute funds to VitaDAO and participate in governance. And also like smaller DAOs and funds like Spaceship DAO, Beaker DAO and HealthBank Capital are aligned with our mission and joined the genesis round. We also initiated some other projects, a decentralized Web3 review service and a journal, and that helped spinning out a company directly from university. You will hear more about that later. Um, with that, I also want to give a shout out to our media partner, Lifespan.io. If you want to stay up to date on the latest things happening in longevity and crypto, you should check them out. And if you have any questions, you can use the Q&A button at Zoom and um, or the chat in YouTube, and we will collect your questions from there and post them to the respective speakers. And with that, um, I'm handing over to my co-host, Eleanor. Thanks, Max. So hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. We're super excited to get going with this schedule for today. It's got a really exciting lineup. And I'm super excited to announce our first speaker and our keynote speaker for today, Professor Andrea Mayer, Professor in Medicine, Healthy Aging and Dementia Research at Yong Leland School of Medicine, National University of Singapore, and is co-director at the Centre for Healthy Longevity, National University Health System. Her current focus is on understanding human aging and to develop longevity medicine as a clinical and academic discipline, which we will hear about in her talk today, Longevity Medicine, Good to Go. So Andrea, if you're good to go, then the stage is all yours. Thank you so much. Um, I think somebody has to start the, the video. <laughs> That's great. Okay. I. I think you still cannot see me. That's. Uh, we can see your slides, but yes, I can't see you directly. No, because it's unable, the camera. But I'm fine. If, if you don't see me, that's also good. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we'll see. We can place it behind the screens. But otherwise, I think at the moment, everyone can see your slides, which is the main um, importance. Okay. Okay, so um, at a certain time, I will see the camera and then, then I look here in your eyes. <laughs> so, um, yes, I am good to go. And I would say the conclusion of this talk is already that longevity medicine, in my view, is good to go. And uh, you're seeing uh, a hospital, Alexander Hospital in Singapore. And I think that hospital is also good to go. Uh, for the first um, publicly funded longevity medicine clinic, um, I would say around the world, there are not many places who try to integrate longevity medicine yet in publicly funded system. Um, privately funded, yes, there are lots of longevity wellness clinics, etc. I will talk about that uh, in, a, in a second. They are already there, but I think we have to reach a, a greater 
um, proportion of the population. As you know, aging starts very early and not yet, not really at the age of 30, but already much earlier um, when the first cell divides. Uh, but I think these are so compelling data about uh, the aging process uh, of young individuals from the age of 26 to 45 year olds. These are data from the Dunedin study really showcasing that every organ function in the body is going to decline from quite early uh, ages onwards. I am an internal medicine specialist and geriatrician, so I find the ages between 20 to 30 quite compellingly young. Um, what is declining and how could we already measure that in clinical practice? Yes, we could. You see that on the right-hand side, for example, measuring the BMI, you can even do it yourself. Um, you don't have to go to a clinic, but also, for example, a FIO2 max. Um, now I was enabling uh, the video. Thank you so much. Um, the FIO2 max, for example, uh, I would say nearly every clinic can do that. Uh, every nearly clinic can, can take bloods and uh, measure triglycerides or CRP or creatinine to measure the, um, the function of the kidney. So all these factors are going to decline very, very early in in life. And all these factors might not be abnormal yet, but they are very uh, important risk factors for age-related uh, diseases uh, later in, in life. And therewith, while having a trajectory towards a worse uh, functioning of organ system, that's already the slippery slope until we have age-related diseases uh, in, the, uh, in the end. Um, uh, this, this is the most personal uh, slide I have for you. So what, what you see is an individual, and it's, uh, yeah, it, it's me, um, aging at different uh, age uh, groups. So here you see uh, three different decades of my, of my life. I think everybody, what we are doing, if we are looking at somebody and we are judging how old somebody is, the first thing we are doing, and that's proven by sociologists, we are looking at wrinkles. We are looking at the shape of the face. We are looking at the hair color. We are looking at the skin color. And of course, uh, that, that all increases during lifetime also for me. I'm really not... Uh, very interested in the outer side of my body, but I'm more interested in the inner side of the body and what the risk is that I have age-related diseases later in life. And with the wrinkling grade, there is a huge association, very significant, uh, with the risk of diseases. So if somebody has more wrinkles, also that, that person on group level, not on individual level, um, that has more, the group has more uh, risk for age-related uh, uh, diseases. And I will show you an example that really the outer side of our body gives insight of what's happening inside of the body. This is a quite old study out of my group where we made photographs of um, roughly 60-year-olds of the general population and um, 400 of them. And we made the photographs and we, we judged the wrinkling grade and we, we looked at lipide and, uh, and lots of morphological things. But what we also did is asking a group of individuals to judge how, how they thought, how old that person is. So that's the, the perceived age of a person because that's what we're doing in, in daily life. I'm judging somebody as a clinician. I'm judging somebody is that somebody being older or, or younger. 
And I do that, for example, as I already said, based on, on the face and what I see. What we did with these individuals being 60 um, years of age, 70 years of age, we also took skin biopsies from the inner upper arm, from the sun-protected uh, location of the inner body. And we stained these skin biopsies for uh, P16. Uh, and P16 is a very nice, very common use senescence marker. But we also looked at the structure, for example, of the skin. And what we were able to see, what you see on the right-hand side, that the wrinkling grading of that person, just looking at the photographs, and that that is positively associated with the number of senescent cells that person has in the inner upper arm. And of course, that's that's I would say from a biological perspective, that's wonderful. But on the other hand side, uh, we there always know that the outer side is really a mirroring the inner side. For example, how much senescent cells we have. The same we uh, saw for the perceived age. If somebody is being judged older, that somebody doesn't not only have more at risk of diabetes and cardiovascular diseases, et cetera, because individuals with a, a higher a disease load are looking older, but these individuals also have more senescent cells in the inner upper arm. So therewith, I think it's a little bit an understudied area because it's very focused on cosmetics most of the times, but we can really learn of, um, of skin features and how we perceive these uh, skin features, uh, I would uh, say. And that gives me um, the link towards a very important topic, and that is diagnostics, and that will lead into di uh, interventions. So we know why we are aging, because we defined the hallmarks of aging, and I already touched on, on the P16 positive cells. So these are senescent cells, and senescence is one of the hallmarks of aging we already defined very early 15 years ago in the field. And these papers are now being updated, but I must say that there are not more, much many more, more hallmarks uh, being recognized at, at the moment. So we really understand since a couple of decades now why we age, which you see on the left-hand side. While understanding what's occurring and we are able to measuring the senescent cells, we can bring then these factors into hopefully clinical care to see what can we use the diagnostics for clinical care. So which of the clocks we are now calling them, which is nothing else than quantifying how bad or good certain features are compared to individuals of the same chronological age or the propensity for diseases and mortality later in, in life. So we've developed clocks as a field, for example, the blood chemistry clocks, the DNA methylation clocks, and we have lots of omics data and we are developing clocks for them. And we have, I must say, a little bit too many clocks at the moment. So we really have to focus on a couple to see how accurate are they? Are they reproducible? Are there any limitations? What is the applicability in clinical care? Because I think our field is at the edge to jump into clinical uh, practice. And we have to make sure that everything we are providing in terms of diagnostics, of course, has a high accuracy. So that's, I would say, the really need of our field finding the right diagnostics, but we already have methylation clocks we could use already in clinical practice. And some, maybe also the listeners, they are, we are already using. On the other hand side, I think it's quite unethical just to diagnose somebody, to say you are five years older compared to your chronological age. I think we should also have uh, interventions in place. 
On the upper hand side, you see what I'm confronted with as an internal medicine specialist all the time. We are aging, uh, we diagnose the disease and then we are treating the disease and then the death is following. So geroscience really tries to slow down the aging process, as you uh, might know. And we are already have enablers and hands that we could intervene in clinical practice. For example, while having been granted the XT90 as an ICD-10 code by the World Health Organization, and there's lots of discussions if we have to change it, which code to use. I think we are struggling a little bit with the frailty space because they're also using these kind of codings. And I think we just need to wrap up our arguments to, to get our real, real own ICD-11 uh, code. And what we need, because if you have the WHO conversations, which I personally have to see where geroscience is heading for, we need much more evidence. And we need evidence-based intervention and evidence-based diagnostics. So that's very important that industry partners really merge together with academic partners or industry is really doing um, high quality standards of uh, normal um, academic research, we would, uh, we would expect also that the cardiology or the oncology field uh, is doing. Healthcare systems are quite dichotomous. Um, patients are coming to my clinic and say, doctor, do you have good news or do you have bad news? There's not much in between. So the bad news is most of the times indicated by something which I receive in, for example, pathology data, it's red or it's a star, but everything else, it's, it's, it's just normal and we don't make any differences. However, this is very different from what we are perceiving during the aging process. Here you see, everybody knows our organ function is going to decline uh, with chronological age, and it's, it's for all organ systems like this. And some are aging more rapidly, like ethosimers, for example, and some um, are a little bit later in their, in their organ uh, performance decline. But every organ is really dysfunctional, sort of, in the end. That's what we are picking up as, um, as physicians. So something is positive or negative. At the moment, especially also here in Singapore, but around the world, we really try to invest in individuals, and we call that prevention, to invest in these individuals who are at the edge of a cutoff point we defined as medical specialists and as the environment to say, okay, you are at the edge and we would like to prevent that you become a COPD patient or you become a diabetic or you become demanded, etc. So our investment is really in individuals at the edge of that disease. That's great because it's the first way of preventing uh, diseases. However, there is not much investment in already older individuals to say, okay, you are quite fit, you are caring for your grandchildren, but are you really at the optimum of your potential functioning at all? Or could we make your body and maybe also your mind even better? So not what's wrong with you, but how can we optimize your health? And I think that's the next stage of medicine. I never asked, and I must admit that, in my normal clinical care in individuals because I didn't see them at the age of 70 who were super duper functioning. What we really don't know, and I think that's the heart of longevity medicine, in quite young individuals, middle-aged individuals, to see how can we optimize the organ performance. And that's what the longevity medicine is doing. And we just founded a society to bring healthcare professionals together to, uh, to reach that aim. 
I think at the moment, a little bit a bridge too far to implement it in, in care systems is think about, could we actually provide the best care for individuals who want to become pregnant, males and women, um, to see if we can provide the optimal function to the offspring. But there are lots of initiatives here in Singapore to see how we could do that. But I think that's the real um, uh, challenge to, or uh, an opportunity to do, uh, to start very early in life to apply uh, the longevity medicine framework. Here you see the Healthy Longevity Medicine Society website. Uh, it was founded at the 8th of August this year. So it's a quite young society. You can apply for memberships. I will show you in a, in a second uh, what our aims uh, are. But it's really bringing healthcare professionals together, bringing like-minded uh, individuals together, can, can come from industry or even laymen can apply for, for a membership. What we um, first did is defining healthy longevity medicine and healthy longevity medicine is optimizing health span. So it's not just enlarging health span, but it's optimizing health span by targeting aging process. This is a court of the lifespan. So this is our first white paper we are writing at the moment, will be published soon and being out there, but to define a new speciality in care in for the medical system. And I think that's very important because uh, oncology is defined, cardiology is defined, we have to define longevity medicine, which we now did. And we need to educate others. And the first thing we need is a recognized speciality. So we are very busy in different countries to talk about uh, how can we implement longevity medicine as a recognized speciality with the medical councils, which we do, and under which you're also in Singapore. And we also want to educate laymen. We want to educate CEOs who have to actually bring care into, into play in hospitals. So education is very, uh, very important, not, not, not only ourselves, but especially also the crowd, the laymen. Um, we want to increase the quality because I really have a problem with the field, and I'm very open about that, that we don't stick to any standards and there are no guidelines um, how we should approach things because it's a non-regulated field we are in that gives lots of freedom, which is great. But I think our, our field could really be much, much quicker in the in, in involvement and in, in the evolution, I think, where we are, if we have certain standards of quality and what we are going to implement it for consumers and, and whatnot. So we are writing as a society guidelines, for example, which biomarker is going to work? What is the evidence that a certain methylation clock is going to work or not? What, what is in the end, if a consumer buys something uh, online, what is the investment? What is worthwhile the investment? Do you get something in return? And is it a high quality product? Yes or no? So we will judge these and um, and, and write it down in, in uh, journal articles. We will also accelerate because this is what our field needs. We have lots of pockets and there are lots of startups at the moment in being built and they are all yet compared to other businesses, small. So I think we need, at least from an academic perspective, we will bring people together and to have a big trial network that we can do if we test, for example, 
um, supplements like NMN or spermidin or whatever, we can do that in a bigger number. As for example, Neobasili is doing with the TAME trial to test metformin. So we need to accelerate our field and we don't have to be scared that somebody is taking some of the um, hope, yeah, maybe revenue or clients or participants in trials. I think uh, working together because 100% of the population is aging would be a better, better choice. This is a core principle of how I design um, health longevity clinics, privately and, uh, and publicly. So in Alexandra Hospital, publicly, but I also have a company and co-invest, uh, I'm co-founder uh, of, a, of a longevity clinic uh, privately. So our basis is, of course, the clinical phenotyping and the digital phenotyping. Clinical phenotyping means you need to know what the gait speed is. You need to go know what um, uh, the cognitive function is, something about social lives, etc. Then the digital phenotyping, which is very important. I think we are throwing lots of um, evidence away if we don't track uh, our, uh, our patients, but especially our participants of clients in longevity clinics. So measuring their sleep, uh, their glucose level, etc. Then this feed into a multi-omics approach, measuring the uh, microbiome, metabolomics, proteomics, you know of this, including the epigenome and the genomics. That entire profile feeds into the environment where somebody lives, so maybe changes of the environment, lifestyle interventions, supplements, repurposed drugs, and new drugs. We at the Center for Health Longevity, we really combine these efforts. We are looking that the, the first KPI we have find diagnostics to implement in clinical practice, which are good enough, which are accurate enough. Secondly, find intervention. These have to work together because in the end, as a clinician would normally do, you, you measure the glucose level, you give metformin, you are measuring glucose, the glucose level again. That's what we would do in diabetics. Here, it's a little bit more complicated we don't, because we don't have just one marker yet, but we have to learn what's going to work and what's not going to work. One of the things my group is very interested in is in building biological clocks, and especially biological clocks which are readily available for clinical practice, which every GP could do, because I really believe that in the end, I wouldn't say I believe, uh, because belief for me always believes to the, uh, belongs to the church, but um, I really think that we should um, enable GPs without any lots of additional cost to do a judgment how the function of a, of a body a system of a client is, is really doing. That's the reason why we invested into analysis in the UK Biobank, more than 100,000 individuals. And we looked at all available clinical data uh, we had available together with environmental data, with disease data. And we had follow-up of, of roughly 12 to 14 years, which is great. So what we did is while having all the data, we thought, okay, we will build one biological clock, one body clock, an overarching clock. But we will also then compare that overarching clock with different organ clocks. And we would calibrate that first at the first generation clock with the chronological age and then the second generation clock to see how that clock is associated with the incidence of disease and mortality. You see the body clock. Um, yes, if you have algorithms which you train that you would like to predict the chronological age, you will find ours of a 0.7 and 0.8. So you also you see that our body clock as other clocks is very nicely associated, the predicted age uh, with the chronological age. I don't think that our, our, our field should really thrive 
to do more investments in predicting the chronological age, because just look at your passport. Most importantly is to invest in what do you refine in terms of associations of these kind of clocks? And are these, for example, environmental factors and are the clocks predictive for the onset of disease? So the second generation clocks, it's much more important. Here you see a slide where we looked at all our clocks we developed. So the organ specific ones and the body clock, what kind of determinants we have, um, what is determining how your clock is or that participant's clock is ticking. And we were looking at very normal factors at smoking and certain ingredients and eating habits. But for example, and that's so important, we also had data about green space. So how much green space does a participant has in the surrounding? And of course, we would assume that individuals with more green space in the UK have a lower biological age, and that's true. So which means that it's so important not forgetting the environment where somebody is living in and then calibrating uh, that and, and making hopefully changes with that client, not where somebody lives, but maybe uh, how often green space is going to be um, uh, searched for while running or while, while walking. So I think we really need a multidimensional approach to, to tackle the aging uh, process. Here we show that the biological age, the clocks we developed, uh, here the body clock, is very predictive of the onset of the disease. So what you see here, we uh, formulated that, that body clock, somebody had a, a certain age, and we said, okay, um, how much is that associated with the onset of, for example, stroke, dementia, diabetes, COPD? And what we found is that um, individuals in the future who had become a COPD patients were four years older at baseline um, uh, compared to the ones who had not developed COPD, which means our clock is quite, quite nice. The same for diabetes um, at uh, the baseline. Uh, if somebody uh, developed in the future diabetes, um, they were at baseline three years uh, older, which means that these clocks are associated at quite early age, 55 years of, of age, to predict age-related diseases uh, later, later on. What we also looked at <coughs> is if these clocks are associated, but also the organ-specific clocks, in predicting all these diseases. Because in the last slide, you only showed the, I showed you the body clock, and what you see here is, is lots of data and uh, we color coded them. Everything which is green is significant. Every other color uh, not being gray is significant. So everything is what is gray and it's not much, it's not significant. Everything is green, reach significance. And if it's red, it's very significant. And what you can see is that there is a very nice color coding for the body clock, which means the body clock was the best one in predicting the onset of disease later in life, much better compared to the organ-specific clocks, which may also make sense because we are not just aging in our heart and our muscle and our brain, but there is a huge network and an overarching clock is much better in predicting that. Um, this was the UK Biobank, but I just wanted to show you because I want to convince you that we are ready for clinical implementation, that we can also use other clocks, for example, based on pathology data, every GP can do. We have a big resort study I, I did in, in Melbourne where I included geriatric rehabilitation inpatients, so a very different cohort, very sick, very frail. And we applied um, the young AI 
uh, uh, data of algorithm to it. And we judge the biological age uh, compared to the chronological age. So we again had first the first generation clock and then a second generation clock. The second generation clock we built is predicting the clinical frailty scale. And what we showed is just looking at 30 biomarkers being normally being measured in clinical care, making a clock that that's associated with a clinical frailty scale in these kind of uh, patients who are quite, uh, quite frail. So I, I hope that you see that we can build clocks and overarching clocks might be much better than organ-specific clocks. And I just want to show you one example here, looking at senescence and the senescence load in different organ systems uh, in association with chronological age. During the lifetime, we are accumulating, very likely accumulating senescent cells in different organ systems, but the rate of, of um, accumulation of these senescent cells is very different, at least while, while organizing all the data until 2020 from all human studies, we showed that the most higher um, uh, relation between senescence load and chronological age is being found in the pancreas and in the brain, and a little bit also in the heart and in the lung and in the eye. So which means that the rate of accumulation is very different in different organ systems. And I think we have to uh, take that into account. And we are lacking lots of knowledge how different um, organ, uh, organs within one individual, within a body are aging. That's the reason why we are heavily investing in a core measuring all these hallmarks of aging and standardizing them, that if we are getting samples from patients, but also samples from uh, cohorts, for example, that we can standardize it in a very uh, efficient uh, way. So we can identify um, the trajectory. I would like to touch a little bit on interventions because I think it's unethical to just leave somebody with a lower or a higher chronological age and then uh, not having intervention. Physical activity is already, you can prescribe it to individuals and we know how physical activity is interfering with the hallmarks of aging. So we are there to already apply it. The only thing we don't know yet, how much physical activity is good for one individual compared to the other and what kind of physical activity, for example, resistance exercise training or aerobic training. What we know, and this is a summary of lots of meta-analysis, and I had 10 PhD students working on one slide we uh, published last year, where we looked at all available evidence, where we looked at the, uh, the accelerometer data, so which mean objective measuring steps, counts, et cetera, sedentary behavior, to see how much is that associated with negative outcome. And we standardized all these data sets, and these are 200,000 individuals in, in this slide of lots of meta-analysis, and this is the umbrella meta-analysis, showing that the number of steps is the most important. There you see this big circle, which means um, that there's a hundred, uh, higher standardized effect size. So steps really matter to prevent frailty and to prevent uh, muscle mass uh, and muscle strength decline. So it's not so much sedentary behavior, but it's the number of steps. And I cannot go deeper because I just have uh, 35 minutes, but I also want to show you, which is not our, uh, our data, a very nice study uh, in PLOS Medicine study rec um, published recently, where they looked at 
what kind of food choices uh, do we have in the Western, but also in the Asian culture? And what would be an optimal uh, food uh, to take to increase um, uh, lifespan? Here, it's not based on health span, but it's on lifespan. And they did lots of meta-analysis of lots of databases and what they found, and you see this in the table, and please look, there's a very nice article up, that people eat too many eggs, too much milk, etc very too much red meal, uh, meat. And if we would all um, adapt to an optimal um, uh, diet, we would actually live much, much longer. And that's depicted here. If somebody would switch from a Western diet to an optimal diet at the age of 20, that person would, and then uh, very likely based on the uh, algorithms, live 10 to 13 years uh, longer. If somebody would switch at the age of 60 from a normal diet, Western diet or uh, an Asian diet to an optimal diet would increase by eight years. And at the age of 80, it's roughly uh, three years. So food, physical activity is so powerful. So even if somebody doesn't want to take a supplement, we already have ingredients in hand and we have the diagnostics. And I think this is ready for, uh, for integration. Uh, we at the Center for Health and Longevity, my group, is really investing in building platforms to do randomized controlled trials. The first uh, randomized controlled trial is uh, alpha-ketoglutarate because we have evidence from the animal models it's readily available already on Amazon. Don't buy it there at the moment. Wait for our trial. And we are uh, looking as a primary outcome, the biological age measured by an epigenetic clock to see if we can lower that biological age in 40 to 60 healthy uh, year old, healthy individuals. We are also preparing my group, uh, a rapamycin study, urolysin A, gemfibrozole and glycine. But there's much more on the list. Um, and we are doing systematic reviews at the moment, including physitin uh, and spermidin, uh, for example. But I really set up the structures to do that. And I would welcome everybody who would like to join or have ingredients being tested, uh, uh, happy to help uh, or do the, do the trial. One of the ingredients we are testing at the moment is alpha-ketoglutarate. You see, you see the mechanisms, lots of mechanisms, pleiotropic effect of alpha-ketoglutarate and reducing the oxidative stress uh, etc., inhibiting cell uh, growth uh, in cancer uh, cells. And there was very likely having a very pleiotropic effect to lots of, uh, of organs. And that's what we want. Of course, we don't want to treat in one organ, but we want to treat lots of uh, organs. And here you see possible effects, but we are going to test that. Another very interesting one uh, and very often already used is NMN. NMN is being given to increase the NED levels because during chronological aging, um, NED levels lower, but they can be modified by uh, caloric restriction, uh, dietary uh, restrictions, exercise, etc. But I was involved in a trial to see while doing uh, giving NMN in a, um, in a manner of not only having placebo, but 300, 600, and 900 uh, milligram in 80 men who were aged 50 without, no, uh, without chronic disease and giving NMN for 60 uh, days, I was uh, helping with the analysis of, of these, uh, these data. And what we found is if you give uh, to these individuals being healthy NMN for 60 days, NED levels is go are going up. 
which is great. Not going up in the placebo group, that's great, uh, but especially going up and being the highest in 600 milligram, uh, the NNM uh, group, which you see in the lower uh, part. If we are giving 900 milligram of an, uh, NMN, there's not much uh, more increase in NED levels compared to 600 milligram. Most importantly, that the individuals at the age, uh, at the in the 600 milligram group have a much, much better six minute walking test. So walking more uh, steps, more meters, and they also had a better quality of life. And that's great because that's what we are looking for. So now I think we really need a little bit a bigger trial to confirm these uh, data, but it seems to work, which is great. Uh, we also did lots of uh, research in looking at specific factors, for example, which are uh, related to cognition because cognition is a very important factor of um, aging healthily. So we were doing a systematic reviews to see how can we inhibit the uh, glycogen sin um, synthase kinase 3. Uh, and there was looking at inhibitors of that uh, pathway because that pathway is hugely uh, associated with Alzheimer's uh, disease. And so what we were able to look uh, at is that there are lots of natural products which could actually, actually interfere with the GSK3 pathway as depicted here. Lots of animal studies, not so much um, evidence in humans, which you see on the, um, in the lower level of this table. Everything is green as significant. So lots of significant uh, things, but there might be also a little bit of uh, publication bias, I must admit, because um, there are not many not significant um, uh, research uh, studies and the, the studies in humans were both non-significant. So watch the, the space, I would say. We also did that with other drugs being um, uh, related to insulin signaling, for example, uh, GLP-1 agonists, gross hormone, etc. But what you can see in looking at uh, the animal studies, but also at the human studies, that lots of studies are negative. And that's great because our field has to learn. And I think we should really avoid publication bias. So I like the negative studies. And I think we should then focus on the positive studies. But if you look at the human ones, there are lots of negative studies. There is much more positive in animals, which either mean it's not being published uh, when it's in humans uh, or if it's in, in animals, or that there are other mechanisms driving the aging process in animals compared to humans. And that's the reason why I really think that we need much more human studies. We also looked at proteostasis um, uh, uh, drugs, which could uh, influence the proteostasis, which, are, which could be repurposed, for example, lithium or rapamycin. And what you can see, lots of studies in animal models and not the translation yet. And that's the reason why we, I think, really need the trial network. Just summing up, um, what is our aim at the Center for Health and Longevity? We are combining preclinical studies with clinical studies. We are bringing it into practice and we want to change public health policy levels. At least I would like to do that. That's the reason why we have public-private partnerships in all of these components. And we are um, uh, looking forward to opening an Alexandra Hospital, the first uh, study. We have huge efforts to bring it into the public health space by looking at uh, national initiatives like the health districts and health CISG. And we need the ecosystem. And uh, we did lots of efforts uh, in the past to build not only the Health Longevity Medicine Society, where the founding president of, but also uh, investing in education from next year onwards, we will have executive classes, master classes, and I would call crash courses to educate 
you and me, but especially also the laymen, the politicians and the CEOs of hospitals. We have the diagnostic core very soon, and I built the intervention core where we can really in a standardized way uh, perform clinical trials where we can actually test what the effect size is of a certain supplement. So we can identify, we can intervene. I would like to invite you to our health longevity uh, webinars. It was just an, a couple of hours ago. Please join. Uh, we have great speakers. We have great discussions. And I think it's good uh, to learn. If you have missed all the episodes, just look at YouTube. You will find them. And thank you so much. I think we are good to go. Well, thank you very much, Andrea, for that really awesome talk. Um, great round of applause for myself. Um, so whilst we just wait for some questions from the audience, I have one from, for myself as well. Um, so you mentioned the body clock and how it was a really good uh, way of seeing the, the risk factors to different diseases, diseases and different organs. And I was just wondering that also used a lot of different measurements in terms of translating this to the general public, often doctors have a very limited time frame with their patients. So how would you go about finding like a the, the best few biomarkers to be employed if you've got a limited time for patients? Yeah, that's a good question because I think what we are doing in the field, we are doing far too much because we don't know better. So uh, one of the, and that will never be cost effective and especially not if, if we have to do that or we should do that in 100% of the, the population. So most importantly, we, we are doing the, the analysis now in the UK Biobank to see which factors are most predictive for, for a bad outcome. So that's the first step. But I think we can already start because measuring something like a BMI, measuring the weight and the, uh, not the height should stay the same, but measuring the weight and follow um, up these individuals and GPs can already do that. And looking at the trajectories of a glucose level, looking at the trajectory of a blood pressure should already help to see even without AI and machine learning and nice algorithms, if your client or your patients is trending into the wrong direction. So I think most importantly, empowering individuals to measure their own health. So while using variables, for example, and measuring them over time, and then you will see uh, what's going wrong or not. And of course, that's not so specific as having uh, methylation clocks, which is great, but I think that's a good start um, for the public health uh, system. Exactly. Um, I think we have a question from the audience. Are you able to, um, Professor Andrew? Yeah. Yeah. So, Andrew, nice to see you. Hi. Uh, this is Ivan Jokes nice in Oslo. <laughs> uh, yes. So, I think uh, you guys are doing wonderful work. So many, you know, ongoing things. Um, I'm especially interested in the NAD plus precursors, the NMM uh, data. So you had a vehicle 300, 600, 900 milligrams. And you can see uh, for the 900 milligram, you can have four times increase of NAD plus from 11.8 to 48. So that's a very dramatic and big increase. I wonder which tissue did you use for the NAD detection, whole blood or PBMC or plasma yeah. serum? Yeah, 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 no whole blood. And um, that's, that's very an important point. I don't think that we are measuring NED levels uh, well between different organ systems. And I think we, we, need, we really need a deep dive. Unfortunately, uh, in that study, we don't have lots of uh, biomaterial, so not PBMCs and not just the T cells and B cells, because I think the NED levels will be very different in different tissue types. Most importantly, so 
I interpret these data, most importantly, while comparing the different groups. Um, so compared to uh, the baseline, and what we really wanted to see is where is the highest level? So where is the increase and where is the P, uh, plateau, for example? And just using whole blood, there was a plateau at 600 milligram. But as you know, um, it might be very different in different organ systems and tissues. Uh, so we, we, we don't have that answer yet. If 600 milligram uh, is the optimal dose, for example, but at least if we are looking at the clinical parameters, there was not much more improvement in the 900 milligram group. So I, as a clinician, then always trust, okay, what is the clinical phenotype compared to? It's fine that NED is going to increase, but uh, especially in RCTs, I'm looking for the clinical outcomes. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Uh, we have one more just quick question from the chat. Um, do you have recommendations on how people in this field and lay audiences can avoid the hype in the longevity field from animal and cell culture studies that may not translate to humans? Oh, yeah, um, I think it's, it's so, so obvious. Um, lots of people say we can fix mice. Yes, we can do that, but we are not mice. So um, what I observe, I'm now in the field uh, in, for 20 years. It's a very long time. We are just sticking to the animal models. And I, the only reason why I'm in Singapore, while um, I would really like to live with my husband in Amsterdam, but in Singapore, we can do the job or we have the capacity to do it, to do all the randomized to control trials and to really bring evidence into the human space. I'm not interested if you really ask me in my studies and see elegance, it's good for mechanisms, but now we have so many hints and we just have to work together in, in bringing it into the clinical trials. How can we avoid the hype? I think just being, uh, use your brain and be rational that um, the shape of a mouse and the behavior is quite different from humans. So don't trust everything. <laughs> Yeah, well said. So thank you very much again for the presentation, Andrea. And I'm really excited to see the sort of advances you make with healthy longevity medicine. Um, so thank you so much for this. Um, I'll pass it over now to Max to introduce our next speaker. Thanks for inviting me. Bye.